was a remote monastery deep in the woods where the monks followed a a rigid vow of silence. Just imagine. Their vow could only be broken once a year on Christmas by one monk. And that monk could only speak one sentence. So one Christmas, Brother Thomas had his turn to speak for the whole year and said, I love the delightful mashed potatoes we have every year with the Christmas roast. Then he sat down and total silence ensued for 365 days. Well, the next Christmas, Brother Michael got his turn and said, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy and I truly despise them. Once again, silence ensued for 365 days. The following Christmas, Brother Paul rose and said, I am fed up with this constant bickering. 365 days more of silence. And so it is in the church sometime. We take our precious opportunities to talk to each other. And what do we do? We bicker and argue and fight and offend people and complain and sin against each other. Well, God knows that that is our human tendency and that our human tendencies follow ourselves into the church, the church family, his kingdom family. And if you were here last week, then you remember we started in Matthew chapter 18. So turn with, your, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. And everyone is going to need a bulletin, a sermon notes today, because on that is a flow chart that we're going to follow today. So you need to be You need to have one or be sitting next to someone who has one. Just raise your hand, and Chris will put one in your hand so you can follow along with that. It will not be on the screen, but we're going to be looking at that. So we started chapter 18 of Matthew last week, and if you were here, you heard me say that this, if you have a red-letter edition Bible and you're open to Matthew 18, you see a lot of letters in red. This is Jesus' fourth long discourse in the book of Matthew. And he's going to be talking for a while. This, this speech of his, talk of his, will cover six weeks of our sermon series. And we're in week two of this right now. So the thrust, the main thrust of this discourse of Jesus is our kingdom relationships. We're in this kingdom family together. And it's important the way we relate to each other and all kinds of relationship dynamics. If you were here last week, he began that fourth, his fourth discourse talking about honoring children. And he used a, an actual literal child to also illustrate how he sees all of us, his children. We're all his children in this family. And we need to give a special place of honor and protecting and pursuing the younger ones in the faith among us who are more susceptible to being led astray, who have lower status. God wants to care for all his people, all his children in his kingdom family. But along the way, and this won't come as a surprise to you, there is conflict. And so Jesus is going to give some serious instruction today. Now, we wish that it was easy. We wish that we could go through life from the moment we trust Jesus and are forgiven of all of our sins and washed clean and pure by the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. When we receive that forgiveness, he washes all of our sin away. And we wish that from the moment the Holy Spirit indwells us, to the time we reach heaven, that we would never say anybody anything that hurts somebody, that we would never be hurt, that we would never offend anybody, that we would never let anybody down, that we would never be let down or be betrayed. We wish that that was the case. Wouldn't that be great? But that is heaven. 
That is not our reality here in this world that we're living in now. Now, if there was no sin, it would make ministry a whole lot easier. It would make marriage a whole lot easier. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks, John. Happy anniversary, by the way. (laughs) It would make parenting easier. It would make work easier. Yes, all those things. That was good timing. But that is not reality. So, Jesus, we open to Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. He equips us today. He equips his people with his process for conflict resolution and for church discipline and how that fits in, followed by his powerful teaching about forgiveness. That's what we're in for today. Let there be no doubt for us who call Jesus our Lord what we should do with conflict because he is clear today what we need to do with all conflict in our lives. Jesus first tells us that for his glory and for our best, we must, number one, we must care enough to confront. Care enough to confront. So we have conflict resolution, church discipline. These are terms and concepts that in far too many churches are unknown, unfamiliar, unpracticed, misunderstood, not valued, and so things fester, gossip takes over, things split, everything is just ruined. And it doesn't need to be the case. So how do we lovingly confront a brother or sister in sin in a way that produces a change of heart and regains our unity and in a way that serves the erring brother or sister in a way that honors God? How do we do this right? What do we need to know? Before we look at Matthew 18, let me just bring one text that I want to establish how big of a deal this is to God. Let's look at Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. It's on the screen. Hear these words, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Remember, we're kingdom family here, children of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those who he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So this is a topic of love. It's a hard topic. It's one that we can be victorious in. In our text today, Jesus says this is for all of us to do and to do it right. So our first verse is verse 15 in chapter 18 of Matthew, where Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So on your notes, you see five goals. As we set out to talk about resolving conflict and what to do in tense situations of all kinds, um, it's a hard thing to do to do this, to take care of it. It's a lot easier to sweep it under the rug and ignore it, but that's not our calling. That is not obeying and following Christ. So to do hard things, it is helpful to have a high vision for those hard things. That helps you just be willing to take them right on. So here are five goals for conflict resolution from Scripture. This is what we accomplish when we follow Jesus in this way. First is to bring the most glory to God. It will glorify God when we resolve conflict of every kind. Second is to maintain the unity of the body. As I've said, if you sweep it under the rug, it destroys the unity of the family of God. Third is to best mature us in holiness and Christ-likeness. We mature the most when things are called out, when we're held accountable, and we grow. Fourth, to best serve the others involved. It is not serving people, just ignoring things. And then number five 
to reach freedom in forgiveness. Any conflict that hurts you or hurts others, the freedom that's in forgiveness, you have no more need to talk about it, to think about it, to dwell on it, for it to ruin your day or to eat you up or to keep you up at night, to keep you in bitterness or anger and all of its torment. You are set free from it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? These are five goals why, this, why we want to go right after this. We care enough to confront. So now that we care enough to confront, let's look at the biblical process, how to do it. And for that, I want to start, you have to look at the top of your notes here, what to do when someone sins against you. Is he or she a Christian? If not, you go through Matthew 5 steps. We're going to focus on if the answer is yes, the right column here. And I start with Proverbs 19.11. This is a wonderful passage of scripture and concept that we need to start with. Let's read this verse together. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. See, we get offended to some degree virtually every day. Every day. Many of those offenses are, are minor. They're small offenses. And we need to distinguish What's a small, minor offense that I can overlook and what is not? If I can overlook it, if I can get over it. See, when Jesus' process starts, it's going to be in the more major offenses. When we say, I can't overlook this and I shouldn't overlook this. But there's a lot of cases, if you've been a victim of a minor offense, consider if overlooking it would accomplish the goals that we just looked at, the five goals that are on your notes. Would overlooking it accomplish those five goals? For instance... Let's say you came to church today and somebody, kind of in passing, made a funny comment about your outfit, which does happen here, doesn't it, sometimes? Because people don't know what to say. We're a little socially awkward sometimes in a, in a hallway. You say something. Um, yeah, this has happened to virtually everybody. Now, that, that bothers you and affects you and can hurt you. Now you're, you're, you're faced with, do I assess that they really meant to harm me? Well, then that could be. Uh, reason to address it. But if not, it's like, nah, they didn't mean it. I'm just going to let it go. And that is to God's glory. And it's to your glory, God says. Proverbs 19.11. This kind of stuff happens in our households all the time. We say things. We're with each other all the time. Happens in the church office, among the staff. Um, nobody's immune to this. We say something and it doesn't come out exactly the way uh, we meant it to and somebody's hurt. And if we understand that, it's to our glory to overlook that and not be bitter and not be eaten up about that. Has anybody ever done that to somebody accidentally or had that done to them? Okay, all of us. So I like to start there, but, and I'm going to say the word however several times today. However, say it after me. However, however, this is not the case in many offenses. Some we can't get over, we, can't, we shouldn't get over, and if overlooking the offense does not accomplish our goals, in those cases, we move on to Jesus' process that we're going to go into right now. Matthew 18. This is a process we must memorize and apply in all conflict. Ready, children of God? Here we go. And Jesus begins his process with a very realistic scenario that all of us will face over and over and over again in the course of our life. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, it will happen. So what do you do? First, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
Okay? You go right to the person. You share how you perceived and felt by what they said or did, how it made you feel. And if they listen to you and you're able to restore your relationship, you have regained the relationship. We are unified once again. There's no more bitterness. You're free from it. God is glorified. Amen. However, everybody say however. However, However, it's been said that maybe 90% of all church conflict skips or avoids Jesus' first step for resolving conflict. 90% of all church conflict, we don't go right to the person. We go to almost anybody other than directly to the person. So much of the conflict in any church today just would not exist. It would be taken care of if we just follow Jesus' first step in his process. And church leaders need to do a better job at this as well. Let's think this through. Here's a scenario. All right, see if you can follow along with this. Picture a singles ministry, and you have a single young woman, and she comes to you and says that she was talking to one of her other friends in the singles group, telling her that yet another young woman was saying things about her that were not true. So already we have lots of different directions other than going right to the person. Her friend said, here's her advice, you should go talk to the group leader or to the pastor. So she came to me. Now she is asking me to go confront the woman who is saying untrue things about her. Okay, there's a scenario that plays itself out a lot in various forms. But think about what we've covered so far. What should I do? Go back to the steps, step one, step two. What should I tell her to do or ask her? I should ask her, first of all, is it, uh, is it an offense that's so minor and innocent, maybe accidental, uh, that you can overlook it and let it go and be healed and, and be released from that to the glory of God. And if she says yes, great. And if she says no, then we enter Jesus' process. Step, okay. So what's the first step in that? She's got to go right to her sister and say, I heard that you said this. This is how it made me feel. Can we resolve this? Is that true? Is there, is there something wrong between us? Period. And most of the time, that will work. It works. And as it does, go to the bottom right box. If you tell him or her alone, and it works, and they receive it, and you offer and extend forgiveness, you have gained a brother or a sister. Apply forgiveness. And it is sweet. And the devil doesn't get a foothold in your relationship or in the church. Gossip doesn't take over and take off. It's finished to the glory of God and everyone's best interest. Now, having said that, there are some cases, there are some legitimate cases where it's not safe or appropriate to go right, for you to go right to the person. Can you think of a time when that's not the best thing to do? I would say if that person is abusive or overly intimidating and it's not safe or it's just too, too hard, then it's okay to get help, to get, to get somebody to go with you. Those, those, are, those are cases, and we're here for you for that. Okay, so let's say you do that, but it doesn't work. They don't respond well. Jesus' next step is not to let it go, unresolved, but to go with one or two witnesses, to take one or two with you. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, 
take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. All right, so if the first one doesn't work, the second one often does. That's to take one or two impartial people with you into the situation. So first, let's understand what a witness is not. A witness is not someone who has witnessed the conflict. I used to think that's what it was. It makes sense, right? A witness is not someone who has witnessed the conflict. A witness is, rather, an unbiased person who, can, who is asked to come and witness this meeting between the two parties, to serve as a mediator between them. See, that impartial person or two people can sit and listen to both parties explain from their perspective what happens, what happened, and then to improve communication, to settle things down, de-escalate, to give an impartial viewpoint, and to offer biblical counsel. The witnesses hear the facts of the conflict for the first time in this meeting. And a church leader or a spiritually mature individual is preferred so they can give that biblical counsel. The role of a witness, and some of you may be called on to be that in a, in a situation. So the role of the witnesses is to hear and observe both sides and then repeat what you heard and saw on, on both sides. Typically, there is sin on both sides, and the witnesses should point that out to both parties. So here's an example of what a witness might say in a meeting like this. After hearing things and repeating what you've heard, say something like this. This is what I heard. I heard you say this to her, and you said it in this way, and this is how she took it. I would have taken it the same way. However, the way you reacted and your reply were inappropriate and would have caused me to be upset as well. See, if, if you can help people get into the other person's shoes, how they perceived and received things, and, oh, I would have taken it the same way, that's really key in resolving conflict. This often works if the parties are interested in all in following Jesus. This mediation, this counsel, often works if you're really interested in following Jesus. And when it does, look at the bottom box again. It says, you have gained a brother or sister. Apply forgiveness. And rejoice that the conflict has been resolved, the church is a healthier family, God is glorified, and you're not staying up at night anymore. You're following Jesus. And the church should be, should be, the place where conflict is resolved better than anywhere else in the world. Because we have Jesus to follow. His words, authority, and the Holy Spirit to guide us. Sometimes it takes the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural thing. However, everybody say, however. however. Hi, very good. However, if your opponent professes to be a Christian yet refuses to listen to the witness's counsel, refuses to repent of anything, Jesus commands, you've got to tell it to the church. Look at the first part of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. What does that mean? say that does not mean we announce it on Sunday morning and tell everybody all the details. We're not going to print it all in the bulletin as an insert. Why not? Well, for a lot of reasons. But the spirit of Matthew 18, yeah, you're just picturing that, aren't you? Oh, man. Uh, the, the spirit of Matthew 18 is to keep the, the circle as small as possible. You see that pattern? 
uh, until the conflict is resolved. So, because of that, instead the church leadership or leadership from both churches if the two parties are from different churches, and I've been involved in those scenarios where we come together, we sought out for mediation. Typically that could be a couple elders or ministry leaders. Sometimes the entire elder board is needed, and we're completely willing to do that, and good things happen when we take Jesus' process seriously. So if this serious message, message is, measure is successful, then we will rejoice the church leadership is prayerfully gives godly counsel, and it's received well, and we can we have gained a brother, and all the goals of conflict resolution are completed beautifully. We can rejoice, and we can apply forgiveness and rejoice. I've often said that I, I don't look forward to conflict meetings, but I look forward to the fruit of them. And it's true. Those aren't your favorite meetings, but the results when they work are better than almost anything else in ministry. And you see that healing and the restoration and the end of all the, the bad things that the devil does. However, everybody say however. however. Sometimes the human heart can be so hard against God. It's like I hear that, I hear the truth, I know the truth, but I'm going to sin anyway. I'm going to hold on to that bitterness anyway. God commands his people clearly to act justly, to seek peace, and to be reconciled with others. And if a Christian refuses that and puts your hand up to God and say, I will not obey you, God. If he refuses to listen to the church's leadership, standing on biblical ground, and repent of the sin, Jesus gives one final step, and that's in the second part of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a non-member. Remove him from membership of the church. And this is for his own good because the church cannot pretend that everything is okay when Christians refuse to repent from sin. So treating unrepentant believers like unbelievers, removing them from membership, it may be the only way to help them see the seriousness of their sin and return to the Lord. And if that's ever me, I pray that you will do that to me so I can be restored. Now listen, it's important to, rem- to, to realize and to remember what treating people as an unbeliever is. How do we treat unbelievers? Does that mean we're angry at them and we kick them out and cast them aside and talk bad about No, it doesn't mean any of those things. How do we treat the unbelieving world as we're following Christ with love and compassion Proclaiming the gospel to them, always with the goal of restoration, to bring them back. We look for every opportunity to reach out to them. Jesus makes a conclusion in verses 18 through 20 here that's a little tricky to understand, yet very encouraging. So let's look at these verses together. Verses 18 through 20. He concludes, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's tricky. He continues, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So he's talking about his authority as the king of kings. We have the Great Commission 
part of it here on the board here, right before he gives us the, the great commission to proclaim Jesus to all nations in the world, what does he say right before that? He said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. He is the king of all kings. He created the universe, and he holds it all together, and he has authority over it. And he says to the church, you take that authority and go proclaim salvation to the nations. In this case, it's the exact same thing. He's giving his authority and the authority of God's word and the process that he just laid out and the power of our prayers. If we're following Jesus faithfully, sticking with his word, then the church is granted his authority to declare whether someone has been restored or not, or if someone is forgiven or unforgiven, or if someone is under the danger of being in rebellion against God or not. The church plays the physical role, the important role of extending God's love and truth to sinners by the way we counsel, by the way we discipline, by the way we forgive, and through sincere friendship and support the whole way. So we put flesh on all that. And God has given us the authority for that. And then there's comments about prayer. Look at the power of our prayers that he promises. As the two or three witnesses pray for the conflict situation, there's a special sense of his presence and power as we get together and pray in unity for the situation. The power of corporate prayer, anytime Christians get together on any level, there's a power and a presence of God that's special in that. The Bible, that's a general biblical principle. But here Jesus applies that that is especially so in dealing with conflict resolution and forgiveness. And so we pray, and so we gather to pray, and it works. You can't neglect that. You have to start with that and focus on praying. Now we've been seeing as we go all along, the bottom right box is what we're hoping for in all of those steps, that's what we're praying for, that's what we're striving for, that's what we're doing hard things for. And it ends with applying forgiveness. Well, Jesus is going to drill down on that point next as we finish the chapter, chapter 18. Because forgiveness is oh so important to him. It is the essence of the gospel and it is the essence of who we are, our identity in Christ. So we come to point two and that is, at the end of all this, find freedom in forgiveness 70 times 7. Yes, when we enter this portion of Scripture, we come to the parable of the unforgiven servant. When Peter asked the question of Jesus, how many times should I forgive Jesus? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times 7. And then he talks about a severe warning about our unforgiveness. You know, this passage, this parable, would make a great fall all-church sermon and small group series, right? Wouldn't it be so great to just dwell in this for a whole fall? Yes. We did that last fall. If you were around, you might remember that. There's the 70 times 7 sign put on the wall there. It had that big, giant 70 times 7 up here. That was a special season, and in the, in the journey we went through was so good for so many people in this church. So many things were restored. So much bitterness was ended. The prison of our heart of unforgiveness. So many, so many were released from that and strengthened. So I don't have six weeks right now to spend on this parable. What I'm going to do is just spend our remaining few minutes on it by giving four, boiling it all down to four incredibly important truths that Jesus gives about forgiveness. 
First is our forgiveness should be unlimited. You've been saved by Jesus. You follow Jesus. Our forgiveness should be unlimited. Verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. See, Peter is referring back to Jesus' first statement in in verse 15 when he said, If your brother sins against you, I'm I'm teaching you how to be members of my kingdom family here. If you know you're going to get offended and sinned against many times, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, Peter's asking a follow-up question here. How many times do I do that before it's too much? You see, the scribes and Pharisees, if you remember this, their official teaching was you forgive people two times, and on the third time, you can smack them. You can get your revenge. That was the teaching. So Peter more than doubled that. He said, seven times? He thought Jesus would be impressed by that. And honestly, I would give Peter the benefit of the doubt. I think that showed some serious faith and willingness to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, no, no, no. When you follow me, when you follow the king, it's different than anything else in the world. It's different than your flesh would teach you. It's different than any human structure would ever teach you. Our forgiveness should be 70 times 7, unlimited. Why? Because of the second truth that Jesus teaches, and that is that God's grace is the model for forgiveness. And what is God's grace like? Jesus uses this parable here to teach this, so let's read it. Starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom family and a kingdom life, we're part of Jesus' kingdom of heaven, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him in humility here, have patience, this is us, before God, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And the king's response, out of pity for him, out of grace, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Stop right here and see the grace of God, the inexhaustible, infinite grace of God. 10,000 talents here. We talked about this last fall. We did some math, and that equates 200,000 years of labor. Can anybody repay that debt? He used that number to show it is an unpayable debt. We cannot earn our way into salvation, into heaven. The servant could not earn the forgiveness of the king. He did not deserve it, but the king gave it to him anyway, and that is the grace of God that he richly lavished on all of us the moment we trusted Jesus and received him, his righteousness. Oh, what grace God has lavished on us to pay all of the horrible sins that we'll ever commit through Jesus' death on the cross. Now, saved from our sin, redeemed, set free, new life, believers in Christ, followers of Jesus because of his grace. His grace is is the model for the way we forgive others. Not because the others deserve it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. 
but because of God's grace. That's our motivation. Look at Ephesians. Ephesians 2.8 first proclaims, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So, therefore, Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Let's all read this last part out loud. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let those words sink in. This is how we forgive and why we forgive. Unlimited. Right there. Now back to the story as it unfolds. Jesus' third truth is unforgiveness toward a fellow kingdom family member betrays our arrogance. Verses 28 through 30. But when the same servant went out, who was just forgiven everything, he found one of his fellow servants, fellow kingdom family men, who owed him a hundred denarii, a, a tiny sum, and seizing him began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He refused. He who has just forgiven everything. Who is he to refuse? Jesus says. Jesus forgave you of everything. He forgave me of everything. Who are we to not forgive someone else whom he has saved and forgiven? How arrogant. Jesus is serious here. We who have received Jesus' grace, we must be willing to forgive everyone who have receive Jesus' forgiveness. No, we must not be just willing. We must be eager to. Eager to follow Jesus in this way and see the world change and our relationships restored and him glorified and the other goals for conflict resolution. And if that doesn't get through to you, hear Jesus' fourth truth because he does not skip this. It's a loving warning. Don't suffer the consequences of unforgiveness. I want everybody to understand that all the don'ts in Scripture, and there are many don'ts, don't do this. And our flesh pushes, bristles against those and pushes back. Don't tell me what I don't, shouldn't do. But all of the don'ts, 100% of the don'ts in Scripture are given by God out of God's severe love, holiness, justice. It's what brings justice. It's his compassion. It's his righteousness. It's what's right. And his desire for your freedom. He tells you, don't do these things. It will destroy all of that. That's what we have here. Here, Jesus, to close his parable, says this, verses 31 through 35. Don't suffer the consequences of unforgiveness. Finishes the parable. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they, and they went and reported this to their master, that's the king, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him back and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not, should not have, you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the torturers. To the torturers. Until he should pay all his debt. Jesus concludes very clearly, verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, 
if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The, the Greek word for torturers is basanistes. Those are the ones who bring suffering. And this word is used in the New Testament for just about every type of suffering. Physical suffering, mental suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering. You see, unforgiveness will eat you up holistically. All of you. And God allows that when we refuse to forgive. Like this petty servant, God removes the protection of his peace. That's what he does in order to restore you. That's a frightening thing, place to be. God removes the protection of his peace from our lives so that we will repent and end the bitterness and release others and ourselves out of the prison of our heart. You may be suffering and in any kind of way, or all of them, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, because of unforgiveness, Jesus says here, but he says you can end that suffering when you release that person from your heart's prison. Hear the words of Jesus and be released from this. This is a picture of a snake here, an illustration that I read this week that illustrates this very thing that we do to ourselves unnecessarily. There was a snake that crawled over a sharp saw and was cut. In anger, the snake wrapped the saw with its thick body and proceeded to squeeze the life out of the saw. With each angry squeeze, it felt more pain, but continued because it wasn't going to let that saw get away with the pain that it had caused. The snake, refusing to let go of the saw, eventually died not knowing the whole time he needed to let go of the initial pain and focus on its future and where it was going. Instead, the snake unfortunately lost its life and didn't even see it coming. Hear this illustration of Jesus' parable of what we're doing to ourselves and to the glory of God and the health and unity of his church and the other person and the testimony of Jesus in the gospel, when we hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, that's what happens. It's a no-win situation. God has given us the steps today to release it all and to enjoy the freedom of forgiveness. So here are some next steps I urge you to take today. The first one is to focus on God's forgiveness of you. If you focus on God's unending grace that he lavished on you, forgiving, I mean, Completely restored, forgiven, everything is gone. Shame, mistakes, past and future is gone in Jesus. And it's when we see our sinfulness and that he took it away that we're motivated to forgive. And friend, if you have not just trusted Jesus, received his gift of salvation that he bought for you, why not today? We can't get to God without Jesus. But Jesus paid the cost already, and you can come to him today. Be clothed in his righteousness, totally forgiven. We focus on that, all of us who have received that in our lives. Awesome. And here's how we have to live now towards others. Number two, deal directly and honestly with your conflict or bitterness toward others. 
And here's your opportunity to do this today and enjoy life again. Part A there, I will begin conflict resolution with, and you fill in the blank, you write a name down. If they're sitting next to you, you might just want to write an abbreviation or a code word. Or just write their name and show them. We're going to begin this process of conflict resolution here. We're going to do it. It's, it can be long. God is gracious. He's patient. He's with you every step of the way. B, I will forgive blank. Is there someone you need to forgive? Because if you don't, it's going to keep on weighing you down and, and bringing the tormentors right into your life. Eat you up. But you can do that today and be washed right away. And then C, I will ask forgiveness from. Who have you sinned against? Eat dirt. Those are two powerful words. Ask for forgiveness. Humble. This could be a child or a parent or somebody at work, an opponent. Who is it? Maybe you need to walk across the room today after this service is over. Or maybe it's a phone call because they're not here. Or an airplane ticket to get there and be freed from this. We're going to observe the communion, bread and the cup, the elements, and I don't know if there's a more directly connected message than this to dwell on the cost Jesus paid to forgive us. His broken body has shed blood on the cross. He tells us to do this so we remember and worship him and follow him and then have communion, community, union, unity among us all as we let this go and give it to him. We can't do this on our own power, but we don't have to. He's given us the supernatural Holy Spirit's power to do this. So embrace this. Pray for it. Let me pray, and then the men will come and we'll prepare. Lord, we conclude the journey through the rest of Matthew 18 today, seeing hard things in front of us, but seeing a high vision for those hard things and step-by-step -step instructions how we can follow and here we proclaim the support of the church we ask for your we ask corporately and here you are among us to do this very thing lord from the source of it all we thank you for jesus broken body and shed blood on the cross that makes everything possible and as we reflect on that i pray your spirit moves greatly here today among us and in us in jesus name amen all right, as the men start passing the elements down the rows, go ahead and if you're a believer in Jesus, take the bread and the cup. If not yet, let it pass by, the Bible says, but you could just ask Jesus for your salvation today and he's ready to grant it to you this very moment. Jesus says that he doesn't want our worship until we're unified. So I have two more verses to consider. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 it's on the screen. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering, which includes serving in the church, which, which includes taking communion, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. This is a big deal to us and to God. And then come and present your offering. Now in Matthew 18, 15, it's the other way around. When someone has offended you, take care of that. Give it to God. Release them from your heart's prison. If your brother sins against him, go. Show him his fault and be restored. Communion is a time of unity in who we are in Christ.
We have Jesus in common. We have eternity in common. We have a mission in common. We have forgiveness in common. We can't worship God without unity among us. So we celebrate Jesus' forgiveness with the bread and cup. Worshiping him and forgiving others are our responses, which bring freedom. So we have just a minute as the guys pass the elements down. I'm going to sit down, and we have a minute or two to pray and confess sins, do business with God, release people from our hearts. Thank God, Jesus, for his gift. What a gift the Lord's Supper is. Take advantage of it.